May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Uh, some of you may be alarmed that I don't have my notes. I feel I'm alarmed and I know exactly where they are and they're not here. They're in the sacristy. That's right, I'll go and get them. Um, so, while I get them, I would like you to turn to your neighbour because uh, this was already planned and I was trying to work out how I could get my sermon. Uh, <laughs> One of the key themes in John's Gospel is life. Life, eternal life, and as we heard today, abundant life. So, what's meant by that? What do we understand by that term, abundant life? So I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbour for the next couple of minutes. And what does it mean for you, this term, abundant life? And I'll be back shortly. Right, so, I mean, this was planned. You can tell that because I have the slide up. So, uh, what were some ideas that you came up with? Any ideas? There was a lot of chatter going on, so I assume you were talking about this. Well, I was just thinking that abundant life is life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that God has given us. Yep. That's a good answer. Any other answers? Level because of the holding on to to the things spiritual. Yep. So taking it to another level, holding on to the the yeah. things spiritual. Yeah. Any other ideas? When it was talking about the fact that some people just the daily chores of life are quite different. Right. Especially shelter and food. Yep. So just a, food, right. Yep. Because they can actually manage. So they're just deeply practical things about survival, whether you have that or not. So those are all good answers. So what did John mean by that? Mean by that? Uh, some sermons I would have a crack at without my notes, and sometimes I do put my notes down, but not this one, because. For us to understand what John is uh, talking about, we have to go way back in John's Gospel. Now, one of the troubles with the way our Bible is written is that when they were written, the chapter headings and verse numbers and those lovely, really helpful little subtitles weren't there. So, but they've been put in for, to make easy reference. But one of the flips of that is when, for example, John chapter 10, verse 1, when we think, oh, that's a new chapter, so when we read a book, a new chapter is a new subject. So we kind of discount everything that goes beforehand and start from verse 1. That's where we start. And when we do that here, we are in grave danger of actually missing the point of what Jesus is on about. Because this story starts at least at the beginning of chapter 9 and can be said to start probably in chapter 8. So that's what we're going to do for a bit this morning. Right at the beginning, Jesus arrives on, in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And he goes up to the temple. John, he doesn't clear the temple. That happens much earlier. But he gets into a bit of discussion with some of the Pharisees. They test him out. He answers them. There's a bit of a do There's a lot of heated discussion. And in the end, they, some of them decide that he is blaspheming. And they try to stone him. 
Jesus isn't so keen about this, so he hides. And then when the Pharisees have dispersed, he then goes for a bit of a wander outside the temple. And while he is out of the temple with his disciples, they see a blind man who has been blind since birth. Now, John doesn't tell us how they know that he's been blind since birth, but they do. So his disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. And there is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. And then Jesus bends down, spits in the, in the dirt, makes some mud, puts the mud in the man's eyes. At this point, the man hasn't done anything. He hasn't asked to be healed. He's just sitting there minding his own business. And tells, Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Which he does. That's his point of choice. Do I want to be healed? So at that point, he chooses yes, because that will radically change his life. And he goes to the pool and he is healed. And in that moment, his life is turned upside down, just like that. Bam. He can see. All those things that Anne was talking about, all those kind of practical things, suddenly all of those change for him. At this point, some of the Pharisees catch wind that a healing has taken place. And some of these Pharisees are those who want to stone Jesus. And when they hear that a healing has happened, they're not very happy because it's the Sabbath and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and healing comes under the category of work and so healings should not happen on the Sabbath. There are six other days people get healed but not on the Sabbath. And so they're all very ha about this, very angry and they go and find you, well they find the man. And there's a lot more daru daru, there's a lot more heated discussion. Parents diving for cover, don't ask us, we don't want to get into trouble, talk to him, he's of age, he can talk for himself. And it all ends with the Pharisees saying to the once blind man, you might be a disciple of that man, but we are disciples of Moses. We know for sure God spoke to Moses, but we have no idea even where this man comes from. To which the not now blind man says, Well, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him. But the fact is, he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of. Ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. To which the Pharisees respond, You're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? And they throw him back out on the street. Jesus has been absent from the story for a while, but he gets to hear about what happened to this now not blind man, and so he comes and finds him. And he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? To which the now not blind man 
not knowing who Jesus is because, well, he was blind the last time they were together. But it's kind of thinking the voice sounds right, says, point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe in him. To which Jesus says, you're looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? And the now not blind man says, Master, I believe you and I trust in you. And he kneels to him. Then Jesus says, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear, so that those who have never seen will see, and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Now there are still some of these Pharisees lurking about, looking for Jesus, keeping an eye on the blind man or the not blind man, and they overhear what Jesus says. And so they, so they ask Jesus, does that mean you are calling us blind? And Jesus replies, if you were really blind, you wouldn't be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every fault and failure. And just to make the point, Jesus carries on and says, let me set this before you as plainly as I can. If a person climbs over or through a fence of a sheep pen, instead of going through the gate, you know he's, going, he's up to no good. A, seat, a sheep rustler. The shepherd walks right up to the gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate to him. And the sheep recognise his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he gets them all out, he leads them and they follow because they are familiar with his voice. They won't follow a stranger's voice, but will scatter because they aren't used to the sound of it. Jesus told the simple story, but those Pharisees still had no idea what he was talking about. So he tried again. I'll be explicit then. I am the gate of the sheep. All those others are up to no good, sheep stealers, every one of them. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for. They will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, abundant life, more and a better life than they ever dreamed of. Now, if we were to carry on, which we're not going to, but we will hear this gospel on the fourth Sunday of Easter next year, the next few verses, we would hear Jesus continue, I am the Good Shepherd. This is Good Shepherd Sunday. The Good Shepherd puts the sheep before himself, sacrifices himself as necessary, and it all ends, this little story, when the Pharisees say, some of the Pharisees say, he's, a, he's crazy, a maniac. Out of his head, completely. Why bother listening to him? While others weren't so sure and said, These aren't the words of a crazy man. Can a maniac open the eyes of the blind? So it's a long story. And in fact, we heard part of that story in the middle of Lent. And we know it's all one story because John has this pattern when he tells his stories. First of all, there's an action. Jesus heals blind man. 
And then there's a debate. So the debate was between the blind man and the Pharisees and the neighbours. And then Jesus does a big block of teaching about what has just happened. So chapter 10, the last part of chapter 9, and the first part of chapter 10 is Jesus teaching about him healing the blind man. Now there are a whole lot of themes at work in our gospel reading this morning. Abundant life. There's the carry on through from all the stuff that happens as Jesus enters in the temple the first time, which is about Jesus being the light of the world, the one who places the light in the eyes of the believers. There's Jesus the Good Shepherd, which is clearer in, uh, in the Gospel reading for next year. Uh, and here's the Good Shepherd as opposed to the, those who are bad shepherds. And the bad shepherds are the ones who don't seek the lost and are not protecting the flock and are acting as thieves and bandits who steal and kill and destroy, which is kind of aimed quite pointedly at some of those Pharisees who are much more intent on keeping their own mana intact rather than actually seeing what's going on around them or actually helping. And then there's this last one of Jesus the gate, which doesn't kind of fit, it seems, unless you realise that actually that's exactly what shepherds were. So in the Middle East... When they were in town, they would, the sheep would all be put into one common sheep pen and there would be a gatekeeper and there would be a high fence and the shepherds would come in the morning and they would know the names of their sheep. They still do, actually. And they call out their sheep by name and the sheep come to them because they know the voice and then he leads them off. And when they're off out in the countryside looking for pasture, and sometimes they'll go for days and days looking for good pasture and still water, because sheep like still water, then... Uh, they build an enclosure at night and they become the gate. The shepherd sleeps across the entranceway. So the sheep have to go through the shepherd to get in or out, as do the thieves and bandits, as do the predators. So in a very real sense, shepherds are gates. So that's, lots of people go, how can Jesus be a gate and a shepherd? Well, it's not a mixed metaphor, it's just an extension of that shepherd idea. Now, a lot of the time when we think about this reading and think about Jesus the Good Shepherd, we divorce it from its setting in John's Gospel. We have lovely sermons about all that pastoral stuff and we forget that Jesus is actually talking about healing a blind man. So when he talks about abundant life, he is talking about what he has done to that blind man. So what has he done for him? Well, he has changed that man's life irrevocably. Because the reality for that man was that he had no involvement in any of his communities. His community existed beyond him, or he existed beyond that community. He was not allowed to take part in the social life of that community because he was born blind. And people born blind were cursed by God because they were sinners, either them or their parents. So he didn't want anything to do with them because, well, you might be tainted by that sin. So you kept them as far away as possible. And you couldn't take part in the religious life. You couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't do any of that kind of stuff because you were born blind. You were cursed, a sinner. You were the the last person who's allowed to take part in all of that kind of stuff. 
and he couldn't take part in the, in the economic life of the community because he was blind and he couldn't do anything. So he was there on the edge, invisible, ostracised, no, no part to play at all and, and, and ignored. So that when he is healed, people go, eh, I think he's the blind man, but I'm not sure. That's how little attention they had paid to him. So abundant life for him is all of those things suddenly change in a very real and practical way. Except, well except then the Pharisees get all angry with him and they say, you're just dirt and they throw him out. So he's kind of restored but kind of not. How well can he take part in the religious life after the Pharisees have done that? What is that going to mean for the social participation? What is that going to mean? Well, the economic one's a real problem, isn't it? He was blind. He's been sitting all day. He's got no skills and he hasn't got any muscle tone to work as a day labourer. So he's in a bit of a pickle there. And sighted people don't work, get very good earnings as beggars. So he's a little bit stuffed in the economic one. He needs people to look after him till he can learn how to make money. But in all of this, abundant life is he has gone from extreme outsider to briefly insider and then back to partial outsider until Jesus comes. Now one of the images of the Good Shepherd right through the Bible is that the Good Shepherds seek out the lost sheep. So when you lose your sheep, you get your other sheep safe and then you go and find the lost sheep. And sometimes that's a costly experience because you might walk on the path but these sheep, they go all over the place. Just scramble down things and through bushes and get scratched and grazed and in danger of breaking things just to get your sheep back. Now the Pharisees weren't looking for the lost sheep but Jesus does go and in a very real way, look for the lost sheep. <coughs> Jesus is also the gate. And we often read this as, if you fulfil these requirements, then you'll get in. And one of those is that you have to believe in Jesus. And uh, Jesus is the only way to God. Now, that might be true of other passages, but I don't think that's what's being said here. The Pharisees are already the ones who are putting conditions of how you get into the temple, how you participate in the religious life, how you become part of God's circle of compassion. And this man did not fit any of those criteria. And when he did kind of fit, they kind of made new criteria and he got kicked out again. And Jesus, I think, is saying here, you're not the ones who make the rules. I am. I'm the gate. And what are God rules? What is his rules about that? Well, as the good shepherd, those rules are all defined by compassion and seeking out the lost. And then when they are found in a very, in a very real way, Jesus then stands between the man and the Pharisees. He acts as the gate. You want to get to him? You come through me. I am the gate. He is not alone. He is now part of my community.
So Jesus is the good shepherd. I knew there was another picture. And as the good shepherd, Jesus finds the man. And as the good shepherd, Jesus restores him to the flock. And as the good shepherd, Jesus acts as the gate and protects him, stands between those who would want to do him harm, the Pharisees, so that he is protected and he can then have, in a very real and practical way, abundant life. So this is not some abstract idea in John's Gospel. It is incredibly practical. This man was really on the outside. He now is on the inside and experiences abundant life. So what's abundant life for us in light of that? Abundant life for that man was inclusion in the economic, social and religious life of his community. His life was absolutely changed. And that was true of so many of the people who Jesus encountered, engaged with. He radically changed their lives. So what does it mean for us? What is abundant life for us? While I think there are some common things across what abundant life is, I think there are also particular things for each one of us. Because I think what abundant life was for that man would have been different from other people that were within Jesus' fold. We had a Franciscan gathering here yesterday. We have a rule of life which has all sorts of deep and meaningful things in it, which are all good. And we were thinking about what abundant life meant for us, well I was thinking about that, as Franciscans. And I thought, according to our rule, I think for me abundant life is when my life is marked by humility, love and joy. And when it is outward facing. That's when I have abundant life. And when I want abundant life, that's what I need to hope for. Strive for feels a little wrong. I think that's more of a gift than a thing you strive for. I think that's another part of abundant life. So that's how I would describe it. But in the light of the story of the blind man and the abundant life that he was given by Jesus, the Good Shepherd, what is abundant life for you? And in particular... In what ways does Jesus the Good Shepherd seek you out? In what ways does Jesus heal you, welcome you, offer you abundant life? What does this abundant life mean for you?